Hello, welcome back to You Know What I've Been Wondering. I'm Sarah. And I'm Jane. How are you, Jane? Um, I'm doing all right. The uh, weather-wise, it was real, uh, real spooky here today. Lots of fog and the leaves are all changing colors um, like crazy. So it looked like a movie today, which was very fun. It's and fun. I've started teaching mm-hmm. um, my own lessons this week, which was wow. Just very, it's been fun. Been teaching some kids some adding and some multiplication. Um, Cute. So that's been fun. You know, I'm still constantly stressed and overwhelmed and exhausted, but you know, that's par for the course. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> how are you? I'm good. Um, good vibes only. Um, um, <laughs> <laughs> new good vibes. A BTS is putting out another album this year. That's yeah. like good vibes right now. Um God, what are some good vibes? Um, <laughs> I, re- I, re- I really want, I had, I had Puppies some. exist. Um, yeah, but kittens I don't exist. Have any. Yeah, I don't have any. I know, uh, but just in the world. It doesn't matter. It still makes me depressed. Um, good vibes only. I watched um, Rushmore yesterday, which is a movie I really love. So that was nice. Oh, good. Yeah, it's all, I don't, I don't have work today. That was nice. I like a three-day weekend. Why didn't you have work today? It's Yom Kippur. <sighs> so now, starting tomorrow, I have to go into work earlier. I agreed to come in earlier. Which, like, I want to because I want the money, but I don't want yeah. to because that's early. Like, eight. I have to be there at early. 815 and I live an hour away. <laughs> Damn. I have to be at work at 7, but it's not that long of a commute. So, you know, similar vibes. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. my segment's a little long. It's pretty hefty. Oh, okay. So we should probably get started. <laughs> so let's started. dive on in. Yeah. To be honest, I don't remember what I asked you about. I, based on what you just said, I think I remember. Is it about a country? <laughs> it's about a country, yeah. <laughs> cool, 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 cool. Uh, all right. So we can dive into it. Because mine, I, I don't really, I can't tell how long it'll be. Okay. Um, okay. So you asked me about... Uh, the cancellation of Shane Dawson and Jeffree Star. Yes, I did. Which I honestly, like, you asked me that, and then a couple days went by, and I had forgotten my topic, and then I, like, suddenly remembered, and I was like, <gasps> all over again. <laughs> <laughs> That's like, okay. Um, let's start with a little background on both of them, starting with Shane. Okay. So up until a few months ago, Shane Dawson was considered the king of YouTube. He has been a creator since YouTube like first got big. Um, he's been, he's consistently one of the most viewed creators. He was one of the first people to get famous on the app. And he's one of a very small group of people. This is exactly what I just said, um, mm-hmm. who have been able to maintain a large viewership. Um, he and Jenna Marbles are kind of considered the two that have like adapted their content to fit more of a like a mold that people are looking for, and and they've been like the two, they're the two big names, you know? Yeah. Like if he's the king of YouTube, she's the queen, and honestly, I prefer her much better. In 2008, at age 19, he began making videos, mostly considered consisting of sketch comedy videos where he played original characters, impersonating celebrities, and making fun of pop culture. By 2010, he had gained half a million views, which at the time was a really big deal. Um, During that time, he also had a short-lived music career during which he released six original songs and numerous parodies of popular music videos. 
in 2013, he launched a podcast called Shane and Friends and was very vocal about how he wanted it to be along the comedy style of Howard Stern. So, mm. you know, shock value, controversial opinions, yeah. um, that type of uh, humor. Shane and Friends ran for four years and produced 140 episodes. So we're actually like catching up. Like, what are we at? Like 76 and it hasn't even been a year and a half or something? Yeah. 77. Uh, he released a his own, first and only feature film called Not Cool in 2014. Uh, he appeared in the film and the accompanying 10 episode uh, docu-series called The Chair. Now this was a docu-series that was on stars um, that the premise of it was about film directors and like young upcoming film directors and what they did is they gave two different directors, one of them being Shane, the same, um, what's the word for, not screenplay. I was gonna yeah. say script, but the same screenplay and basically told them like, do whatever you want with this. And like the more, um, and then they would compare the two films and have an audience um, rate them, like in terms of right how good they thought it was. And then whoever was rated higher um, would win a, a money prize. I think it was $250,000. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And Shane technically won, but he, <laughs> um, his movie was really not good. Um, like, a, I mean, I, I haven't seen it, but um, the score that he got was 63 out of 100, but he only, he like won by, by a very narrow margin. The other film got um, 58 out of 100. Mm. Um, so it's very close. But the film itself, when viewed by actual critics, got a 14% on Rotten Tomatoes. Oh. And yeah. <laughs> Zachary Quinto, who was a producer on the show, um, called his film deeply offensive and tasteless and has said that Shane should not be making films at all. And he removed his name from the film in disgust. Another <laughs> Zachary Quinto. I didn't know he was involved. That's hilarious. That's so funny. Um, in another video, um, he said that the film was ultimately a vapid waste of time, but he was glad Shane won because of the two directors, he was the one who more successfully made a film that captured his vision. Mm. <laughs> Here's just some of the reviews of Not Cool. One reviewer said it was filled with ethnic stereotypes, um, scatological humor, which I don't know what that is, profane language, and characters who are not so much caricatures as cartoons. Another film said the characters are vile, the acting is terrible. Mr. Dawson, who has some YouTube success, cast himself in the leading role. The tone is, conf is a confusing mishmash, and there's not an original... Um, thought or joke in the thing. A third reviewer said it's called it an abyss, an insult to the craft of filmmaking, storytelling, mm. and entertainment in almost every way. Yeah. So like, whoa. Um, but again, like it got 63% out of 100. But then when they looked back at the, at who was rating it, they found that um, up to 39% of the audience was not telling the truth about actually having watched both films. So <laughs> is um not the most reliable uh, audience to be scoring it from um he also appeared in the 2012 film smiley and the 2016 film internet famous in 2015 he began making videos on conspiracy theories and those have now become his most watched content mm -hmm. um 
He also regularly released vlog videos and collaborated with other YouTubers. Um, the same year, he released a memoir entitled I Hate My Selfie, like my selfie one yeah. word. Yeah, yeah. Um, a collection of essays. In 2016, he released another memoir entitled It Gets Worse, a collection of essays. Mm -hmm. In 2017, Shane shifted his focus to a to lengthier extended vlog videos and conspiracy theory videos and began making documentary style series um, with, hi with himself, um, his now fiance, Ryland Adams, his friend Garrett Watts, his fiance's sister, Morgan Adams, and he frequently co collaborated with Tana Monjo, James Charles, Drew Monson, Andrew Zwicky, Trisha Paytas, Bunny Mayer, um, who is also known as Graveyard Girl. Yeah. In 2018, he uploaded a three-part documentary series titled The Truth About TanaCon, and then mm. went on to make do uh, more documentary series, um, one about makeup artist Jeffree Star, and another about YouTuber Jake Paul. And then in 2019, he did another... Uh, documentary series about Jeffree Star, but this time about the process of the two of them creating Shane's makeup palette together. Yes. Uh, he also released a longer two-part conspiracy video that year. Shane is no stranger to controversy. Um, the sketch videos that he made um, very early on in his career relied heavily on shock humor, mm -hmm. um, relying greatly on blackface. Um, he used the N-word a lot. Uh, he made a lot of jokes about uh, black people, pedophilia, um, mm. uh, bestiality. I guess I should have put yeah. like a content warning in the beginning of it's this. It's all right. <laughs> um, and he, it, it was an extremely common occurrence for people to call him out on the internet. Um, but every, every so often it would get to the point that it was like publicly noticed and he would apologize, quote unquote. But his apologies were really just like, Oh, I was stupid back then. I just wanted to make people shocked. Like, um, now I know right. not to do that. But like, uh, most of it, I mean, he, he himself has said that those apologies were just out of fear to avoid the backlash and to move on. Like he never really seemed to learn anything. There was, he was very nearly canceled. Um, when comment, there's like four different times that he was almost canceled. Yeah. Um, uh, but this time it was about comments regarding pedophilia that he had made on his podcast, um, again, he apologized and said that at the time he had been trying to elicit shock, but he had since learned. Um, in 2019, the same comments resurfaced again, but in combination with different comments he had made about uh, sexual comments about his cat. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah. I uh, yeah. Uh, the exact same thing happened. This, the same cycle of like a fake apology and I, I don't know. Like, I do want to, like, be upfront about the fact that it took me longer than it should have to see him as problematic. Like, I was, yeah. I was like, oh, that's Shane. Same. Um, yeah, like, he doesn't think that now. Well, I think one of the things that I didn't really realize until this year in the past couple of months is when I was hearing that he said problematic things, I was hearing it in the context that he said it, excuse me, I was hearing it in the context that he said it once. Yeah. When in actuality, when I found out a lot later, is that he was saying it all the time. And yeah. so in my head, I was like, oh, he slipped up and he said something he shouldn't have. Like, I've done that. Yeah. You know? But in actuality, like, it was happening consistently. Mm -hmm. Like, I thought, when I heard that, like, he had used the N-word in a video, I was like, oh, that's terrible. But then somebody somehow got in my head that it had happened one time and it was a slip up and he apologized, like Hannah Brown. Mm -hmm. Um. 
And I was like, oh, well, that's still terrible. But like, I don't know. Everybody makes mistakes. Like I can. Yeah. I can forgive him. He didn't do it again. When in actuality, like he was doing it all the time. Yeah. And I will say he very much so like in his more recent stuff, like in 2017, 2018, he was very much like he called himself an empath and he came across like he was so nice to everybody yeah. and he would never want to do anything to intentionally hurt another person. So it was very right. easy to like buy into this idea of like, oh, if he did offensive things in the past, he probably feels terrible about it now. Yeah, like, definitely. Learned. Um, and that's not who he is. Definitely. And like none of his content in the last four years has been anything like that. Yeah. It was easy to be like, oh, well, he's not doing anything like that now. Yeah, exactly. Whatever. Also, uh, this is kind of what I just said, but in response to criticisms of him collaborating and sympathizing with people who are known to be super problematic, like Jake Paul. And some people, like more people now, but people in the past were um, critical of Jeffree Star. Mm -hmm. Um, They criticized him because whenever he... um, like made media of them or content of them he came across as really overly sympathetic yeah and um made it seem like he didn't find them to be bad people and but he would def- um defend this by by again saying that he was an empath who could sense other people's pain and he could find the good in anyone mm-hmm. and like he would spend the little bit the littlest bit of time with somebody and instantly be on their side and like right so he could never see anyone as a villain also, uh, in his editing of the Jake Paul series and, and in the Jeffree Star video, people um, said that he was framing the issues of mental health in a less than sensitive manner. Mm-hmm. Um, like the way in the Jake Paul series, like anytime someone said the word psychopath, they would like, go like, dun dun, and like cut to a really dramatic shot. Yeah. And the, they just made, they, the editing of it made it seem so eerie in the way he used like a, like a therapist, um, just made it seem like he was kind of not making light of it, but um, sort of almost demonizing mental health in a way. Yeah, definitely. Um, uh, now let's talk about Jeffree Star for a little bit. Jeffree Star uh, grew popular on MySpace, where he used uh, his website to further his music career and his fashion design career. Um, mm-hmm. He built up a fan base on several websites, but he had the most traction on MySpace, and he encouraged all of his fans on other platforms to go to MySpace. That was his main Music is characterized as electronica and pop. His only studio album is called Beauty Killer. It came out in 2009 and it reached number seven on the Billboard Top Electronic Albums chart. It featured the song Lollipop Luxury featuring Nicki Minaj. Okay. Akon at the time described him as the next Lady Gaga. So people in the, at least in the electronica music kind of scene thought he was going some places and I can kind of see... Lady Gaga's early career as being similar to what they thought he was going to do eventually. Yeah. Um, but he's no Lady Gaga. Um, no, <laughs> certainly <yeah>. not. <laughs> he did appear in the second version of Kesha's Take It Off music video in 2010. Um, in 2013, he abruptly left the music is- industry before he could release the second album that he said he was going to do. Uh-huh. Um, in two- in 2014, he founded his e-commerce makeup brand, Jeffree Star Cosmetics. According to the Shane docuseries, um, when he left the music industry, he was essentially bankrupt and he used the little money he had left to start his makeup brand. Um, he moved to YouTube to promote his products and establish himself as a makeup brand, which mm-hmm. he was very successful at doing. 
um, as of August 2020, which is an interesting time to make note of that, um, he had 17.4 million subscribers and over 23 billion views. And mm -hmm. I bet that that number is lower than it probably was a few months prior to that. Yeah. He had, he's also no stranger to controversy. He had known feuds with Kat Von D, who very early on in his career publicly said that he was, um, a racist, a bully, and a drug user. So, but the two of them, like, were they have a very public feud. And he's also had very public disagreements with Kylie Jenner, Kim Kardashian, Jared Blandino, who's the co-founder of Too Faced Cosmetics. Mm. Um, another one of his many controversies is that on his MySpace page, he posted a satirical skit um, alongside a drag queen in which he joked about wanting to throw battery acid on a black woman in order to lighten her skin so that it would match, quote, match her foundation, mm -hmm. which is just horrible. That is um, horrible. Yeah. And there have been many documented instances of him using slurs, racial and otherwise. So his biggest defense that he would use all the time was that he was young, he was stupid, people were saying all these horrible slurs at him all the time, mm -hmm. and he felt that he had to fight back by doing the exact same thing to other people. Like, he thought mm -hmm. that was how you, how you, like, fight. No, I, that's not excusing it at all. Like, I don't, I don't know. Again, I'm still wrapping my mind around that. Ultimately, I'm not a Jeffrey fan. Right. Um, and I, I do think he's a bad person at the moment, but I, in the past, have fallen for that many for that excuse like if yeah. you asked me like a year ago i'd be like yeah that makes sense like if someone was saying horrible slurs to you constantly and you were the victim of bullying because of your sexuality because you um didn't identify as like the like the straightest man and like his right. image is very um androgynous and yeah. um like i can see him being the victim of bullying and i can see him lashing out um yeah. And again, I was kind of brainwashed by the Shane docuseries. This year, images resurfaced of an old website that he had called um, Lipstick Nazi. And mm -hmm. there were, there was a lot of like Nazi imagery on that Ugh. website. Like, mainly like there were swastikas. Yikes. And yeah, it was bad. And it, images on the website um, were of him engaging in self-harm next to a swastika. So it was just a, a really dark thing. Um, it, I, apparently he apologized for that this year. I, I didn't even look into the apology of that. I was just like, okay, that's terrible. Um, yeah. And then there's this big controversy with um, Davi Vanity. I think it's Davi. It's spelled D-A-H-V-I-E. Um, he was a member of the band Blood on the Dance Floor. And in 2009, uh, he was arrested on charges of sexual assault. Jeffrey Starr publicly called him a, a child's effer um, and tweeted mm. that he saw Davi bringing underage girls into his hotel room. So people were kind of confused by this because they basically said, if you saw that, and now we know that this man is literally um, guilty of assault, um, if you saw him bringing underage girls into his room and you're claiming that you know him and that you know he does this, why wouldn't you have called the police? So Jeffrey like backed off really mm -hmm. quickly from that, like because people were like, "Well, then you're kind of complicit, like, um, for having witnessed this behavior and not done anything about it." Um, so he was like, "Oh no, I was just saying that from hearsay." Um, and he later tweeted that people needed to get over the neg the negativity against Davi Vanity. 
Um, later on, there was a, Huffington, a HuffPost report, which revealed that Vanity was indeed guilty of assaulting 21 individuals, many of whom were minors. Mm -hmm. uh, Chris Hansen, who hosted To Catch a Predator, covered the story extensively and interviewed a bunch of people about it, including Jeffree Star. And when he interviewed Jeffree Star, he said that he had no knowledge of any inappropriate activity and anything he had said in the past was based on hearsay. Mm. So people... So, so it's this weird situation of like it kind of seemed like he was trying to get famous by dragging down this other guy but then people but when people were critical of him not um reporting this man to the authorities then it was suddenly like oh now you don't you didn't see anything concrete like so why did you say that in the first place mm, yeah just not a good situation no not so, at all so ultimately both shane and uh, jeffrey have a lot of really bad stuff in their past uh, it's kind of, uh, I think, says something about our society that they were not canceled sooner. Yeah. So let's talk about what actually the big incident was. In 2019 and eventually 2020, a series of events unfurled that Insider.com calls Carmageddon. And <laughs> one article I read called it Dramageddon. And apparently that was like a word that Ryland used on Twitter referring to the whole situation. Yeah. <laughs> So it's like very apocalyptic in the words people are using. It is. Yeah. Target has pulled Shane's books. YouTube has demonetized all his videos. Um, he's losing a lot of followers. Despite all of his past controversies, this one seems to be one that's like hurting him the most. The drama that occurred has literally changed the way YouTube functions. Um, which I will explain in a bit, but it was kind of crazy that this is what happened. So what happened? Yeah. Um, First, we need to introduce a couple of outside characters, James Charles and, and Tati Westbrook. Um, James Charles is an influencer and beauty guru. He's only 21. Mm -hmm. uh, so you know, Shane and Jeffrey are both in like their 30s. Um, Shane's 30. Jeffrey's yeah. like 32. Yeah. But James Charles is only 21. Uh, he has a big following on YouTube and TikTok. In 2016, he became the first male ambassador for CoverGirl, and he is known for calling his fans sisters. Yeah. Tati Westbrook is also a beauty guru and a businesswoman. She is known for her more neutral and subdued yet elegant palettes. Mm -hmm. And she also has a vitamin supplement called Halo Beauty, a vitamin company called Halo Beauty. It sells supplements. Um, she is also, I, I don't want to call her old because she's, she's like, I think she might be 40. Yeah. But the way the internet treats her, you'd think she's elderly. Like, yeah. it's so sexist and dumb. Yeah, it's um, frustrating. Like, I'm not the biggest fan of hers, but I think compared to the other people involved i think the bad that she has done is not as much but you wouldn't know that from the comment sections of her videos yeah she's so demonized and treated like this hard elderly hag who's like trying to yeah they, they, they treat her like it's like she's in charge of taking care of the entire young youtube community because she happens to be a woman who's like 40 she might be yeah. i think she's like 38 39 in there yeah you might also need to know the name Gabriel Zamora that it doesn't really matter that much, but just know yeah. he's another young makeup vlogger. Like, yeah, that's his whole deal. That's all you need to know. So Tati and James were friends from really early on in James's career. They have a sort of mentor student relationship. Um, James has stayed with him, her and her husband in the past. And um, she claims to have given him a lot of money, but basically she's helped him a lot. And she helped him mm -hmm. kind of establish his career early on. 
Um, they frequently promoted each other's products in their videos, they collaborated, and they were very vocal about their friendship. In April of 2019, while at Coachella, James Charles promoted the vitamin company Sugar Bear Hair, which was Tati's rival. Yes. <laughs> this we is remember. like, that sounds like such a minuscule event, but like, that is like what snowballed into like it's the inciting incident it's the inciting incident it's not yeah. <laughs> in a video which i'll get to in a minute she said that she felt really hurt and betrayed by this because she had given him so much money and advice and he she said he never endorsed her vitamins she claimed that he just didn't want to endorse vitamins but then had went behind her back to endorse her rival like she said that he had been saying for years like oh no no i, I the only reason why i'm not endorsing your stuff is because I don't like to endorse supplements, but then he did that anyway with yeah. her rival. Yeah. This like isn't even true because in several of his videos, he did endorse her supplements before all of this. He has publicly said that he like doesn't really like supplement companies. And at one point he kind of explained that because his, like his viewers and his customers are also young, uh, which is true. Like his fan base is a lot more like Gen Z, I think, mm -hmm. whereas like everybody, the other um, people we're talking about, they're more like millennial yeah. um, fan bases. He had said that he didn't like promoting supplements because it's something that they would ingest and he wanted to be like extra sure before he promoted something like that, mm -hmm. um, which makes sense to me. But I think literally what happened at Coachella is just that he was like exhausted and maybe drunk and <laughs> just like made a dumb business decision and like did a quick <laughs> right like Instagram thing being like get sugar bear hair and Tati really overreacted. Mm -hmm. He later said on Instagram, I want to publicly apologize to my close friend Tati. She's been like a mother to me since my first days in the industry. And as I said, Ga um, Gabriel Zamora is a minor character in this. He said that Tati was um, overreacting in how she was, in what she was like in her reaction yeah. <laughs> to, um, to this happening. And a I think a couple of other people, like basically Tati was being accused of like really villainizing James in a way that she didn't need to. So in May, seemingly in response to all of this and seemingly specifically in response to Gabriel Zamora, she posted a video um, that was 43 minutes long called Bye Sister. Mm -hmm. So in the Bye Sister video, she said that she had had information about James, but she didn't previously want to talk about it publicly because they had such a close relationship. Um, and that she wanted to teach him the error of his ways more privately. But when the sugar bear incident happened, she decided he was beyond help and no longer cared about their relationship. And it was like time to expose him. Yeah. Um, in the video, she makes many claims about James, but the biggest one being that he was predatory towards straight men. Um, she said that he tried to use his money and fame to manipulate men into sleeping with him. Um, she said, I don't think there's any getting through to you. I don't want to be friends with you. I don't want to be associated with you. And I need to say that very publicly so that this chapter can be closed. James posted a apology video that was um, not super long, but he didn't really confirm or deny anything, just that he regretted um, what was happening with his relationship with Tati. Mm -hmm. um, James's career seemed to be like dead in the water. This video blew up. It, like so many people watched it and his career seemed to be going downhill really quickly. People literally had watch parties to sit and watch his subscriber count go down. And um, after this, YouTube changed the way you see other people's subscriber counts. Now it like rounds it to the nearest thousand or million or 
mm-hmm. what have you, so that you can't watch this like the dropping happen as quickly mm-hmm. um, in real time. Uh, it also was um, one of the first like really long videos to be really successful. So now like it changed the YouTube algorithm. So yeah. now more longer videos are more successful. Um, Tati claimed that her intention for the video wasn't to hurt his career. She thought that he was this like mega famous person and her saying bad things about him would hurt her career. Um, Mm -hmm. So she was like surprised that this had such an impact on him. Over the past year, his career has kind of recovered a little bit. Um, He seems to be doing okay right now. Um, uh, Again, his like TikTok fan base is where he, he seems to be taking off more on that platform now everybody kind of thought that after that video like a bunch of receipts would come forward and we'd all see this evidence of him being a monster but that doesn't seem to really be the case the most damaging thing that came forward was that he had uh was some text conversations that were shared by someone and which essentially the situation is that there's this guy who met james and early on in their conversations james is like hitting on him and he says that he's bi Mm -hmm. um And then when they met in person, they, according to the text messages, which are not like denied by the person, they consensually made out. Mm -hmm. Um, And then over text, the guy's like, I'm very confused about my sexuality. Um, I thought I was straight, but I did think I was attracted to you, but I think I've decided that I am straight and I think we should like cool off and just be friends. And James seems to kind of overreact about that. He's just like, like the guy was literally like, I don't have any bad feelings about you. I'd like to like amicably part ways. And mm-hmm. James is like, well, how do you think we could do that? Like he, he just seems upset at him, which again, like, I'm like, I don't know. This guy's like young, like he was like 19 or at the time or something. And right. like and a James guy is essentially like one. Yeah. No, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. And he like kind of got broken up with and he suddenly right. reacted poorly. Like, like, that's not terrible. And right. also, there's such a stereotype of, like, gay men being predators towards straight men that yeah. it, it, it's such a harmful, like, idea to perpetrate. Um, right. I do, if anything, my thing about James Charles is that I just think he's, you know, he's so rich and he's so young and he's he doesn't seem like the brightest bulb in the bunch to me. But yeah. that's my list of complaints about him. Right. In the past year everybody thought like oh we're gonna find out that james charles is this monster which hasn't like no evidence of that has really um come forward so in june of 2020 tati uploaded another video this one called breaking my silence she claimed in this one that that she and james had made up and that um the bi sister video which is no longer public um, was only made as a result of poisonous lies fed to her by shane dawson and jeffrey starr Um, She said that bringing down James Charles had become an obsession for Jeffrey, and she believed the two of them used her as a weapon against her friend. The evidence at this point kind of suggests that that's probably true. Even if you look at the video, the bi-sister video in the background is Jeffree Star Cosmetics, like a set of it. Mm -hmm. Um, So even though the two of them claim to not really be involved, they really were. Tati said that at her birthday party, quote, every time James Charles turned his back, Jeffrey would tell me that James Charles was out of control. He even texted and called me the following morning to apologize for James Charles's behavior at my birthday dinner and how embarrassed he was for me. She said that every time she spoke to Jeffrey, he had a different horrific allegation about James and that Shane even went over to her house and 
went on for hours about really bad allegations about James and even offered to edit and title the Bye Sister video. Um, she explained that she had been fed so much information about James that she felt sick and that she had no choice but to make it public. She even said that she knew when she uploaded it that he had been depressed and he was staying at a hotel room on a high floor and she was worried about him hurting himself, but Shane and Jeffrey urged her to upload it. Now, I do have a couple of things that I think, like, don't make her look great. Like, I mm -hmm. still think, like, okay, if you really thought that, then you shouldn't be listening to other people. Mm -hmm. Because he has since said in interviews, like, yes, I do struggle with my mental health. And, like, the people who have been close friends to him since, he's like, I'm alive because of them. Mm -hmm. So, like, to be worried about him harming himself is unfortunately, like, a, a sad truth. But mm, doesn't make me think that well of her that she was that easily convinced to do something that she thought might seriously harm him. Yeah. Um, also, the video that she posted, she's reading from a script, which she claims is for legal reasons, which makes sense, but also the whole video is, like, very highly edited, but she doesn't cut out any of her crying. Like, she says a couple times, like, oh, I said I wasn't gonna cry, I told my dad I wasn't gonna cry, but she leaves in, like, at least a minute of her crying. So right. it's very much, like, trying to garner sympathy mm -hmm. and trying to get people back on her side. Minutes after um, Tati posted her video, Shane went live on Instagram. <laughs> He's running around screaming about her fake crying. He just comes across as like really, I don't know. He calls her crazy. He's just like manic and like calls her manipulative. Yeah, calls her manipulative. Um, Ryland can be heard in the background calling for him to stop um, mm. being live on Instagram and. Even though Ryland seemed to be the voice of reason there, they, the two of them, like, went crazy on Twitter, like, calling her all these things, and basically saying that she's lying about all of it, but, like, the evidence doesn't seem to be showing that that's true. Basically, like, those are the big events that's going on. Um, I'm sure, like, there was literally so much controversial stuff in Shane and Jeffrey's past that I'm sure there's stuff that I'm not even talking about. Oh, like, the whole thing with Willow Smith is so oh, incredibly so awkward and disgusting. I, I, I don't even feel like I need to go into it. But basically, like, that was gross. Um, mm -hmm. So, like, there's so much stuff out there. Um, and they, it, there's really this evidence that the two of them are trying to make Tati Westbrook look like she is this horrible person who um, is lying about them, but there doesn't seem to be evidence that that is true. And she's not a saint either, but she's definitely not the type of person that they're making her out to be. I don't know. It's just so much stuff. And it does kind of seem like finally there's something that's teaching them a lesson that's like giving them some sort of consequence to their past actions. I do think, like I said earlier, this specific controversy is not even like in their top 10 of their worst controversies, but it's still not great. And it's something that's finally, you know, causing a bit of karma to happen. Well, I think, <laughs> I think what also is important about um, this controversy is that this all came out at a moment where Shane and Jeffrey were already under scrutiny from the Black Lives Matter movement mm -hmm. in like a bigger way than they had been in the past. Mm -hmm. And literally two days before Tati posted this video, Shane posted a 25 minute video on YouTube saying like apologize, like called like apologizing for my past or something mm -hmm. like that. 
in which again he like cries and claims he's an empath and, and says that he regrets it and says that he was young and stupid and that that's not the person he is now and how he mm-hmm. would never do anything to hurt somebody like same thing over and over again and then literally two days later Tati posts this video yeah so thank that, you for reminding me of that I forgot about that yeah um, so it was like they already were in the news mm-hmm. in a questionable way yeah. And so this just gave people like so many extra things to like really dig into and be like, who, who is Shane Dawson? Who is Jeffree Star? Are they really people that we want to support and be around? And it, like, mm-hmm. it just un- unfolded into a larger thing faster, I think, for that reason. I watched uh, a series of videos by this guy on YouTube who is an expert in body language. Mm-hmm. And he watched and reacted to the apology videos of Shane of um jeffrey and he watched the tati video and he also watched jenna's video these are Mm -hmm. like four separate videos of him reviewing these things Mm -hmm. and shane he basically like his video comes across to someone who's an expert in body language is very insincere Mm -hmm. and edited and scripted in a way that's just like you can tell he like doesn't really feel remorse for the past actions he's just still trying to like get out of the negative spotlight yeah. Um, same deal with Jeffrey. Like his apologies weren't super sincere. <laughs> he's um, on this like crazy gold couch that's like thousand dollars. <laughs> like it's unbelievable. Also, Ch- Jeffrey has done so many apology videos, and in every single one of them, he's like, "I'm done participating in the drama," and yet he always is involved in the drama. He right, never and it's also like gets being out of the a drama. problematic person isn't drama, right? You know, <laughs> like being a racist that's not drama <laughs> <laughs> but and though i think the tati video like he's basically like her tears are real but this is edited in a way that makes it kind of sketchy mm-hmm. and then the only video that he was like this is very sincere and well done is jenna's video um oh, who ugh. i miss her jenna, i miss you but that is like a condensed version of everything that happened um there's this one guy on YouTube, um, D'Angelo. I'm trying to remember his last name. You oh, he's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's great. Go watch what he said. Um, he did a bunch of videos on, he did one video on Shane, one on Jeffrey, and one on Tati. And he did a really good job of breaking it down and discussing mm-hmm. um, everything. His videos are longer, but they're really informative and they cover a, lo- a large body. They cover a lot. Yeah, D'Angelo Wallace. So I encourage you all to watch those videos because they they taught me a few things. Yeah. <laughs> they were very informative. So that's that on that. Okay, great. Thank you for talking about that. That was long. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. Well, we started later. We started we just- like, what, 630? Yeah, it's still 45 minutes. <laughs> There's a lot. There's a lot. Yeah. Okay. Um, the middle segment is going to be is short just because uh, like my, my segment's long and I didn't want to drag this on. Um, uh-huh. And so for the middle segment, I'm just going to talk a little bit about some math um, and math related to taxes. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> so yesterday the, yesterday, the New York Times released an article um, that they had gotten access to Trump's tax documents. Um, and one of the big fines was that Trump had only paid $750 in income tax in 2016 and 2017. That's um, insane. And, like, I just want you to know how little that is, okay? So, some, some fast math for you. Uh-huh. The average income tax, you can look at um, income tax, the average income tax in a household, based on adjusted gross income. And... 
for somebody who makes between 10,000 and 20,000 a year or no 15,000 and 20,000 a year the average income tax is $671. And then the average income tax, yeah, the average income tax for somebody who makes 20,000 to 30,000 a year is 2,300. So oh that means Trump's income tax is the equivalent of somebody who makes about like $22,000 a year. And in New York uh. state, the minimum wage is $15 an hour. If you work 40 hours a week at $15 an hour, you your annual income before taxes is about $31,200. So you already are being taxed about three times as much as what Donald Trump paid in 2016 and 2017. I hate him so much, Sarah. I hate everything about him. He's the worst. I know. I know. I, know. I do too. <sighs> But I just wanted to, like, that's all I wanted to say, <laughs> you know, because I think that's, no, that's enough. Like, think about that, people. Because, like, <laughs> to, to some people, it's, like, $750. Like, that is a lot of money, you know? It's absolutely a lot of money. Yeah. But when it comes to taxes, I just want to be clear about how little money in taxes that is. For a man who has a golden toilet, like... <laughs> For a man that is a billionaire. Now, what yeah. is tax... <laughs> what is, tax is he a billionaire? Yeah, I thought he wasn't. I thought he claimed to be, but then it, like, turned out he wasn't. I don't know. I keep seeing people referring to him as a billionaire. Mm. Oh, also, also his tax documents did show that, like, he's a very, he's a very poor business fan. Like, the reason <laughs> that he's gotten away with all of this is because he's been claiming millions of dollars in losses, enough in losses that he didn't have to pay taxes. Because essentially he was saying that as much as he was making, he was losing in his businesses. That's <laughs> is that nuts? Isn't that completely insane? <laughs> and naturally, when confronted with this information at a press conference on Sunday, he denied everything. And he says of the course. New York Times is lying. And he CNN reported that he literally ran away from them, which is like a little <laughs> a little hilarious. With the CNN reporter screaming after him. That exact thing was it happened with Susan Collins during the Kavanaugh hearings. Remember when she was in that airport and like a reporter went up to her and was like, what are you going to do? And she just like walked away and it's like a really long video of them following her and her just like getting on an escalator and being like, bye. Okay. Well, I just thought I should share that info. No, that was great. Okay. Let's talk about Yugoslavia now. <laughs> I okay. still can't believe it's not currently a country. Well, you're going to find out what happened to it. Okay. okay. So I'm going to do my best with this. There do was your a best. lot. Uh -huh. There was a lot. I feel pretty good about this. I think this is, I think this is my best foot forward and it's shorter than Poland. So that's nice. <laughs> it's also, it starts a lot later than the entire history of Poland. Does. Okay. Okay. So okay. Yugoslavia was a federation that existed on the Balkan Peninsula. And for context, the Balkan Peninsula sits opposite the Adriatic Sea from the Italian Peninsula. And it's very large. The whole peninsula is about 180,262 square meters. There have been many wars fought over the Balkans throughout European history, and the area has been conquered by pretty much every notable empire in European history because of its advantageous position. Mm -hmm. Right now, the countries of Albania... Bosnia and Herzegovina. Herzegovina. I have to say that correctly because I'm going to say a lot. Bulgaria. That's Kosovo, a country? 
Bosnia and Herzegovina, yeah. They're like, I've that's never, one country. I've never heard of You've Herzegovina. Heard, well, it's with Bosnia. The country is called Bosnia oh. and Herzegovina. Oh. Yeah. I've heard of Bosnia, but I didn't know it had a longer name. Yes, it's a full thing. Bulgaria, Kosovo, Montenegro, and North Macedonia are 100% on the Balkan Peninsula. Additionally, 46% of Croatia, 95.5% of Greece, 0.1% of Italy, 5% of Romania, 65% of Serbia, 25% of Slovenia, and 3% of Turkey also exist on the Balkan Peninsula. Just to give you an idea of how much is going on there. (laughs) That is a lot. That's a lot of countries to all exist on one peninsula. It's safe to say it's much larger than Florida. <laughs> but we're going to start the history lesson in 1918. At the end of World okay, War I... that's not too bad. No. At the end of World War I, the Austro-Hungarian Empire falls, which again reminds me that the Austro-Hungarian Empire existed 100 years ago. Which... Blo- or 102 years ago. Like, blows my mind. Because yeah. that's, like, one of the biggest empires of all time. Which had encompassed the Balkan Peninsula at the time. Because of its falling, the kingdom of the Serbs, Croats, and Slovenes was formed. Serbia and Montenegro, which included Macedonia at the time, existed as independent states of this kingdom. And in 1929, that kingdom's name was changed to Yugoslavia. It remained a monarchy until 1945, following World War II, when it changed to a communist republic under Prime Minister Josip Broz Tito. I shouldn't laugh at that. It was then called the Federal People's Republic of Yugoslavia. Okay. It was composed of six separate republics under one communist republic serbia croatia bosnia and herzegovina macedonia slovenia and montenegro as well as two provinces kosovo and vovadina or vojvodina sorry prime minister tito was the leader of the partisans which was considered the most effective resistance movement to the axis powers in occupied europe during world war ii so the germans did successfully invade i don't even know if it was the germans it was the it was the axis powers did successfully invade the balkan peninsula but this part these partisans managed to push them back um and tito as a leader of them therefore became the president the prime minister and then the president of yugoslavia he became the president of yugoslavia in 1953 um and he was president until 1980 in 1963 10 years after his first election he was declared president for life now he was certainly a dictator but many regard him as a benevolent one he was very popular in yugoslavia and abroad he was opposed to stalin and the soviet invasions of hungary and czechoslovakia he did not believe in conquering more land um and he definitely had a better relationship with the un and nato than the ussr at the time um by the early but by the early 1990s, um, there was no effective authority at the federal level. The federal presidency consisted of the representatives of six republics, two provinces, and the Yugoslav People's Armies, and the communist leadership was divided among national lines. Oh, sorry, I skipped a bullet point. Under President Tito, ethnic tensions between the different federations, so Serbia, Croatia, Bosnia, etc., um, were kept in check. He himself was half Croat and half so- Slovene, um, but following his death in 1980, nationalist difference began to emerge in Yugoslavia, and there began to be more of a the sense of, I'm Croatian, I'm not Polish, which, or not Polish, I'm not Yugoslavic, which is, <laughs> I said Polish because this is, Polish. because this is the exact same problem that happened in Poland. Exact same okay. thing. 
in Poland, there was this like sense because they were all under one empire. They were like, no, I'm Polish. I'm not Soviet. You know, it was the same idea. Same exact thing. So after President Tito died, this all kind of fell apart. By the early 1990s, there was no effective authority at the federal level. The federal presidency consisted of the representatives of the six republics, the two provinces, and the Yugoslav People's Army. And the communist leadership was divided among national lines. So essentially there were six separate presidents who all kind of met and ruled Yugoslavia together unsuccessfully. The representatives of Vojvodina, Kosovo, and Montenegro were purposefully replaced with loyalists of the president of Serbia, Slobodan Milosevic. 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 He's a big These one. Vulcan names. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's a big guy. He's important. Okay. So because these representatives were put in place in the government, Serbia had essentially secured four out of the eight federal presidency votes because they had control over three other territories. And they were able to heavenly influence decision making at the federal level, since all the other Yugoslav republics only had one vote. While Slovenia and Croatia wanted to allow a multi-party system, Serbia demanded an even more centralized federation and therefore Serbia's dominant rule over Yugoslavia. Mm-hmm. And it was the replacement of these representatives by Slobodan Milosevic that ultimately led to the Yugoslav Wars. In 1991, Slovenia and Croatia declared independence. The first conflict was known as the Ten Day War, occurred in Slovenia, and it actually didn't start first, but it's considered the first one because it was wrapped up first. Um, occurred in Slovenia and ended relatively quickly um, because 90% of their population was Slovenian. During this conflict, the Yugoslav People's Army tried to secure the border of Slovenia, but were unsuccessful. So Slovenia was able to fortify their nation and their federation and say, no, we, we are now independent Slovenia. And there weren't a lot of people there to fight them because they were almost entirely Slovenian. Following this mm-hmm. brief war, Slovenia and Croatia agreed to a three-month moratorium on succession. The secession of Croatia, however, was not very simple. This led to the Croatian War of Independence from 1991 to 1995. This is considered one of the two most important of the Yugoslav Wars. Um, And the tension here was mostly caused by Croatia's 12% Serbian population who announced their own secession from within Croatia. Again, the Yugoslavian government was mostly run by Serbians, so the Serbians were very loyal to Yugoslavia. But they lived in Croatia. In the 1990 parliamentary elections in Croatia, before this revolution had started, Franjo Tudman became the first president of Croatia, and he promoted nationalist policies and had a primary goal of the establishment of an independent Croatia. And the new Croatian government proposed constitutional changes. They reinstated the traditional Croatian flag and coat of arms instead of the Yugoslavian flag and removed the term socialist from the title of the Croatian Republic. Again, we, they were a communist federation. In an attempt to counter changes made to the constitution, the local Serb politicians organized a referendum, 
referendum on what they called Serb sovereignty and autonomy in August of 1990. Um, for the next year, ethnic tensions rose, fueled by propaganda in both Croatia and Serbia. And then on the 19th of May, 1991, an independence referendum was held, which was largely boycotted by Croatian Serbs, and still the majority voted in favor of the independence of Croatia. So Croatia declared independence and dissolved its association from Yugoslavia on the 25th of June, 1991. And by the end of that summer, Croatia was in the throes of civil war between the Croatians and the Serbs living in Croatia. Because of the Serbs' controls of Yugoslavia, and therefore the Yugoslav People's Army, the Croatian Serbs received support from Serbian present, President Milosevic. Um, Montenegro also supported the Serbian rebels within Croatia, and I don't know how much you know about geography, but essentially Serbia borders Croatia to the east, and Montenegro border, borders Croatia to the south. So, two sides. In August okay. of 1991, yes, just true. yeah, just two months after Croatia declared independence, 1,800 Croat fighters blocked Yugoslavia's advance into Slavonia, which is a region of Croatia, at the Battle of Vukovar. Um, but it was the siege of Dubrovnik, which was a UNESCO World Heritage Site, that dominated the international press, much of the criticism of the Croatians. I've been to Dubrovnik. It's my absolute favorite city in the world. It is the most beautiful place you will ever go in your life. It does not surprise me that the pub that it was much more publicized that this place was sieged because it's like mm. notoriously beautiful so yeah. than this like small town in Croatia. Um, even though a lot more people died in Vukovar. Mm. Um, the battle lasted the battle in Vukovar also lasted from August to November and was immediately followed by a massacre of the Croatians this allowed the Yugoslav People's Army to capture central Croatia with the Croatian Serb forces so Croatia lost that battle after three months they mm -hmm. maintained this control as a self-proclaimed proto-state until 1995 when operation flash and operation storm which are not fun <laughs> at all but i love their names like these are two these are terrible i shouldn't laugh happen, but, but those are great names oh my god operation flash and operation storm wow Aren't those catchy both... names well storm is an x-men and then flash is a superhero Yes. Also, this is confusing because there's a very famous operation known as Operation Desert Storm that happened in the Gulf War. This is a different thing. This was a oh, Croatian yes. front. That was an American um, offense. These two operations let the Croatian army reclaim all of its territory except for Slavonia, where the Battle of Vukovar had happened. And this unclaimed area was renamed Sector East. As a result of this war, most of the Serbians in Croatia were evicted. Sector East would remain under unidentified control until like early 2000. And when the UN would give it back to Croatia. So like that was kind of lost territory for a while. And like I said, as a result of this war, most of the Serbians in Croatia were evicted. Once they regained control in 1995, they were forced to leave. And I'm gonna get back to that in a little bit. The Bosnian War began in 1992 which, so it was happening concurrently with the Croatia War of Independence. Bosnia and Herzegovina also declared independence from Yugoslavia in 1992, and this war was a territorial conflict between three parties. This is going to be confusing. The Bosniaks, the self-proclaimed Bosnian-Serb proto-state, and the Herzog-Bosnia were the three separate ones. Bosniaks were Bosnians. The Bosnian Serbs okay. were Serbians that lived in Bosnia, and the Herzeg Bosnia. I feel like I need to write this down. And the Herzeg Bosnia were 
Croatians that lived in Bosnia or, or people that supported people that wanted Bosnia to become part of Croatia. Okay. Okay. So the Bosniaks, independent Bosnians, the Serb proto-state were led and were led and supplied by Serbia and the Herzeg Bosnia were led and supplied by Croatia. Both Serbia and Croatia wanted to partition Bosnia into their own countries, where some, the Bosniaks, wanted Bosnia to be its own independent country, like Croatia and Slovenia now were. The most famous occurrence in the Bosnian War is as the Siege of Sarajevo. Um, I had heard of this before. It began in April of 1992. After Bosnia and Herzegovina declared independence, um, this conflict is the most famous and the bloodiest of the Yugoslav wars. Uh, Sarajevo was sieged for years um, by the Bosnian Serb faction, and they were led by ultra-nationalist Rodovang Karadzic, his names, promised independence because he promised independence for all Serb areas of Bosnia from the majority Bosniak government of Bosnia. So he decided to siege Sarajevo because he wanted to take Bosnia in the name of the Bosnian Serbians back from the now independent Bosnians. To to link the disjointed parts of the territories that were populated by Serbs in Bosnia but were very far apart, um, Karadzic it's K-R-A-D-Z-I-C, but the Z and the C have accents on them. Is it like a just sound? Karajdik. I think it's Karajdik. Um, pursued an agenda of systematic ethnic cleansing, primarily against Bosnians, for the massacre and forced removal of Bosnia's populations. And this was centered in Sarajevo. So either he was deporting the Bosnians from their country or he was killing them within Sarajevo. Although the Bosniaks and the Bosnian Croats began as, or the Herzog Croat, the Herzog Bos Bosnia, began as allies. Their alliance fell apart in January 1993, less than a year after they they claimed independence, and so they also entered their own war. So now the Bosnians were at war with the Serbians, who were occupying Bosnia, and their neighbors in Croatia. This war was also effectively ended by Operation Storm. So now I'm going to talk about mm. Operation Storm. Operation Storm, which was the more important of the two that I mentioned, commenced on none other than August 4th, 1995. <gasps> <gasps> so while you were being born, this really terrible event happened. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> I was like, oh, no, <laughs> when I read that. I don't even know how to respond to that in, like, a sensitive way. Oh, I my know. God. <laughs> yeah, this is like truly terrible. Um, <laughs> what a thing to share your birthday with, Jane. Um, it was uh, so the Operation Storm was an offensive taken by the Croatian army to reclaim Serbian controlled regions. Oh, I should also say, so Bosnia did briefly go to war with Croatia, but that tension did not last for long. They were able to sign a treaty with the help of the United Nations and sort of quell those differences in order to do Operation Storm because the Bosnians realized it was much more important to get the Serbs out of their country than it was to fight back the Croatians. And the Croatians had already lost a significant portion of their land to the Serbians. So that was a very short-lived, retrospectively, that was a short-lived tension. But Operation Storm was an offensive taken by the Croatian army that just happened to really benefit the Bosnians. 
um, and they wanted to reclaim the Serbian-controlled regions of Croatia. It resulted in the death of 526 Serbs, including 116 civilians, and ultimately displaced 200,000 people. The conflict lasted a little bit over 80 hours. This operation ended the siege in of Bihak, which was in Bosnia, and completely destroyed Western Bosnia, which was kind of an output, a Serbian outpost of Bosnia, and that was under Serb control. So Bosnia ended up being under control of the Bosniaks at the end of this. In September of 1995, a few weeks after Operation Storm, the combined Bosnian and Croat forces put pressure on the Serbs to negotiate using airstrikes, and they slowly regained the territory that the Serbians had managed to control in their countries. The war in Bosnia officially ended with the Dayton Agreement in December 1995. The conflict in Croatia had ended with Operation Storm. This agreement legalized what is now called Republika Srpska, which is a Serbian entity within Bosnia and Herzegovina. So essentially they came to the compromise that Serbians could have their own territory within Bosnia because they wanted to be in Bosnia. They didn't want to go back to Serbia. And that's what happened. Um, and that republic still exists today. It's its own, it's like a province of Bosnia and Herzegovina. You following me? I think so. <laughs> You're doing a great job. Thank you. I wish I could show you a map. <laughs> In fact, if you're listening, I should have said this at the beginning, pull up a map and just look <laughs> at the Balkan Peninsula, okay? Like, all these places still exist. It's much easier. Like, I know that we're talking about Yugoslavia, and I've barely said the words Yugoslavia, but, like, <laughs> it's confusing because Yugoslavia was a federation. Like, Yugoslavia is, like, the United States, and these individual places are, like, if Pennsylvania went to war with New York because New York tried to take Pennsylvania's land. You know, that's the same, same idea. We're still in the United States. Oh, in you, fact, do you want to hear the cringiest thing I heard an 11-year-old say today? Yeah. I, I heard an 11-year-old say, um, I, know, I don't know anything about geography. I don't even know how many countries are in, this, in, in, are in the United States. 30? I was like, no, there's so many things wrong. 11? I know a five-year-old that can name all of the U.S. states. <laughs> He can tell like, you. First of all, there's one country in the United States. Second of all, 30. Where'd you get that number? There's 50 states. Well, what, 52, 53 states? I'm concerned about this 11 year old that doesn't seem to know that there are 50 states. I think I knew that when I was like six. I think that, like, that's like what you learn in kindergarten. You don't need to like, hey, buddy, states. are you okay? I'm worried about that kid. You should check, I'll on, check him. on him. Yeah, check on him. Okay. <laughs> anyway, going back to. The Yugoslav Wars. Um, so now there is a Serbian entity within the Bo within Bosnia and Herzegovina. It still exists. Croatia and Bosnia were on good terms. Everything was great. Then in April of 1996, oh sorry, in April of 1995, before Operation Storm, the CIA had reported that 90% of all atrocities in the Yugoslav Wars at that point had been committed by Serb militants, and most of them had happened in Bosnia. So the U.S. and NATO and the U.N. were all very much on the side of the Croatians and the Bosnians. They saw the Serbians as a threat, particularly under the rule of President Milosevic. Milosevic. I just can't do the noises correctly. It's a learned thing. You know, the sloshing. Um, however, 
Because it's different than like a Polish, like, you know, like, uh, what was that guy's yeah. name? Yeah. Venceslas. Like, that's different. <laughs> like, it's a whole new type of, like, I don't know. Like, this republic, Republika Sverska, is spelled S-R-P-S-K-A. There's one vowel and it's at the what? end. <laughs> What is that? What You're is that lying. I'm not lying to you. So I'm assuming that in Serbian, if that's what this is. Well, what's what's interesting is that all these countries, all these countries essentially speak the different, the same language, but with very slightly different dialects. And I'm going to have a tangent about that later. Um, but I'm assuming this like Yugoslav language that sometimes letters are vowels, like how Y is sometimes a vowel in English. Yeah. So... But I just don't know what that is. But that's how it's spelled. S-R-P-S-K-A. And I, lo- I promise I looked up how to say these things. They just don't stick in my head. Anyway, I'm doing my best. Um, it is important to you mention, are. like I said, the CIA found that most of the crimes had been committed by the Serb militants. However, it is important to mention that Croatia was found to have committed violations of humanitarian law following Operation Storm, um, particularly because they were found to have executed civilian Serbs who remained in Croatia and and subsequently destroyed their property. Human Rights Watch appealed to the U.S. government in August of 1996 because of their alliance with the Croatian forces on this matter and was like, hey, you helped out these people, but they have committed war crimes. And this was actually a point of contention for decades. Western political analysts accused Croatia of ethnic cleansing, and only in 2015 did the International Court of Justice rule that Croatia did not have the intent to exterminate the country and the country's Serbian population, but that serious war crimes were still committed. So they didn't find them guilty of genocide or ethnic cleansing, but because they didn't think that it was being done for that express purpose, um, but they did mm. find them guilty of war crimes in this, in this conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, all of which had been brushed under the rug because of a lot of stuff that Serbia was doing that I will come back to. In 1996, in the southern Yugoslavian province of Kosovo, which is in Serbia, it's closest to Serbia, a new militant group called the Kosovo Liberation Army begins attacking the Serbian policemen. This is like the fourth conflict. This is like the fourth Yugoslav war. <laughs> yeah, this is four. Um, armed clashes between the two sides broke out in early 1998. This was after everything had already started to wrap up in Croatia and Bosnia. A NATO-facilitated ceasefire was then signed on the 15th of October in 1998, but both sides broke it two months later and fighting resumed. So in January of 1999, 45 Kosovars were killed in the Rasak massacre in Kosovo. This this was committed by Serbia. So NATO decided to introduce a military peacekeeping force to restrain the two sides. They warned them, they warned the Yugoslav army that this peacekeeping force was coming, and they tried to sign accords to make this happen so that the force was coming on Serbia's terms, um, and it would be a sort of a, a peaceful transition to having this force there. But these accords were rejected by the Yugoslav People's Army, so NATO prepared to install the peacekeepers by force, which is like such a an oxymoron peacekeepers by force yeah that sounds like something out of a ya novel yeah the peacekeepers because of the lack of compliance from the serbian army nato then bombed yugoslavia um the serbian camp in yugoslavia and the hostilities ended two and a half months later kosovo was placed under government control of the un not because they didn't i think both because they weren't sure of the kosovac leaders 
Kosovar leaders, but also because Kosovo was a province, it wasn't its own independent state. So it was like placed under UN kind of for their own protection so that Serbia couldn't come back into this now vulnerable province. Um, and they were under UN control for quite some time. Um, this 15 month war killed thousands of civilians and displaced over a million people. Unbelievable. Um, there was also an insurgency in the Presevo Valley in June 1999 and one in Macedonia in 2001. And these were the last two conflicts of the Yugoslav War. I'm not going to get into, but they did, I'm not going to get into it because they did happen. But these areas were sort of minor players in the Yugoslav Wars. The mm -hmm. Croatian War of Independence and the Bosnian War were much more significant. Yes, people still did die and it was very sad. But at this point, yeah. the war had been going on for so long that it essentially was, it was repeated things in a new area and the conflicts were a lot shorter. Okay. Um, during the Yugoslav Wars, it is widely believed that Bosniaks, native Bosnians, were mass murdered by the Serbians and this escalated into what is now considered a genocide. A telegram sent to the White House on the 8th of February, 1994, it was sent to President Clinton, if you need some help with that, um, by U.S. Ambassador to Croatia, Peter W. Galbraith, stated that genocide was occurring. It, I want to reiterate that the U.S. and the U.N. acknowledged Croatia as an independent country pretty much as soon as they declared independence. So, yes, there was an ambassador to Croatia because the U.S. was completely on the side of Croatia and Bosnia, like completely. Um, in 2005, the United States Congress passed a resolution declaring that, quote, the Serbian policies of aggression and ethnic cleansing meet the terms of defining genocide. So because uh, Serbia had been the enemy of the U.S., the U.S. was allied with Croatia, the U.S. took significant part in sort of the punishment of Croatia or of Serbia. A trial took place before the International Court of Justice in 2007 that concluded that Serbia failed to prevent genocide committed by Serb forces. Now, something that's important is that this was a government under military rule, so they couldn't find the country of Serbia guilty. They had to find the militant forces guilty, and particularly the man found guilty was none other than President Milosevic. Milosevic. I know it ends in a vich noise. Um, perhaps the most devastating occurrence during these Bosnian wars um, were a huge trigger warning for sexual assault here. Okay. If you like, if you are uh. triggered by sexual assault, like skip a minute and a half um, was the perpetration of Serbron rape camps. According to <sighs> Treznevečka women's group, which is a Serbian or it's a Bosnian women's group, more than 35,000 women and children were held in these rape camps. Others have estimated that during the Bosnian war, between 20,000 and 50,000 women, mainly Bosniak, were raped. Serbian policies allegedly urged soldiers to rape Bosniak women until they became pregnant as an attempt towards ethnic, ethnic cleansing, because in this, in this country, they believe that you are, your ethnicity is through your father. So they were like, oh, if we have a bunch of Bosnian women give birth to boys, those will be Serbian men. Um, Ugh, over, horrible. yeah, absolutely horrible. Um, and this was, this was the biggest issue, but it's biggest issue in the world sphere at the time was that this was happening. Um, overall, about 140,000 people were killed as a result of the Yugoslav wars. So it was just a very, very terrible conflict. 
And, like, a terrible conflict that you hear nothing about, which is why I wanted to talk about it. Yeah. I had no idea any of this happened. Yeah. And happened so recently. I know. We were alive for most of this. Um, However, all of this still doesn't take us quite to the end of Yugoslavia. (laughs) Because I still haven't told you where did Yugoslavia go. In January of 2000, the Serbian government was continuing to deteriorate. Trade sanctions put in place by the U.S. depleted their resources. There was um, an embargo. Is that what it's called? It's one of those things where the, U- where the U.N. says that you're not allowed to trade with them anymore. That happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, Chile what got into a lot of trouble with the U.N. because they were found guilty of sending arms to them, arms to Serbia. <sighs> Um, so Serbian, like, they were depleted, and, like, yes, this applied to civilians. Civilians couldn't get food, water. The, the state of the country was terrible. Also, the entire Balkan Peninsula was really destroyed by this. The Croatian, like, economy was completely shot, and it's just now only recovering in the last, like, five years. It's really bad. Which is, but now Croatia's biggest economy comes from tourism because it's a beautiful country. So a lot of people go there Mm -hmm. and that's helped them recover a lot. But pretty much the entire Balkan Peninsula's economy was shot to pieces. Um, So Montenegro then began considering a separation from Yugoslavia. At this point, Yugoslavia was Serbia, the province of Kosovo, and Montenegro. Right, that's all of them. And Macedonia. Macedonia was in there still, too. Oh, wait, nope. Macedonia's left. So it's just those three. Um, so Montenegro began to consider separation. In September of 2000, opposition leader Vojislav Kostunica won the election in Serbia, but President Milosevic refused to release the results. Which, reading this, <gasps> I was like, oh my god, this is our future and he declared it a runoff election. This I'm led so to scared, Sarah. I know. This led to a popular uprising in October of 2000. 1 million people flooded Belgrade, Belgrade. Mobs attacked parliament and Milosevic quickly lost his support. So he stepped down. And President Kostunica took office and the EU immediately began to lift the sanctions against Serbia. Milosevic was arrested. I finally said it. <laughs> was arrested in April of 2001. <laughs> it's like all this. Milosevic. That's how you say it. Um, was so, arrested. It's so. It's. I don't know. I don't know any Croatians. Actually, that's a lie. I actually know one. I'm such a liar. Um, I was like, you've been to Croatia. You I've didn't been, talk to a single person. No, I like. <laughs> I meant personally, like in my life now. But that's a lie. I actually know one. Milosevic yeah, yeah, um, yeah. was arrested in April of 2001 by Yugoslavian authorities. He was charged with corruption and abuse of power, and then turned over to the UN in June of that year. In September 2001, the UN Security Council lifted its arms embargo. That is what it's called, an embargo against Yugoslavia for the first time in a decade. You so smart. Yeah. In February of 2002, Slobodan Milosevic begins his trial. Wow. Yeah, that's how you say it. Sorry, that's just (laughs) so impressive. (laughs) Slobodan Milosevic. (laughs) Less so that time. (laughs) It's like I got, it's just got to roll off the time. Um, He began his trial at the UN International Criminal Tribunal on charges of war crimes and crimes against humanity, as well as for committing genocide which definitely happened. 
One year later, the nation of Yugoslavia agreed to form a new state, this we are now in 2003, becoming instead a federation called Serbia and Montenegro. The new arrangement was made to placate Montenegro's um, stirrings for independence and allowed for a referendum on independence to occur in three years' time. So, like, okay, we're going to stay these two countries together right now, but in three years we'll reevaluate. And then that December, mm -hmm. 2003, parliamentary elections in Serbia and Montenegro saw a resurgence of ultranationalists. So a bunch of people, again, were like, Serbia is the best. We want to be Serbia. Like, we don't want Montenegro. So in March of 2004, Mitrovico in Kosovo experiences the worst ethnic violence since 1999. Mitrovica is a, is a city. And so NATO has to send troops to restore order. And they were worried that essentially the Yugoslav wars were going to start up again. Luckily, they mm. didn't. And two years later, in May of 2006, Montenegro held a referendum on independence and it barely passed. But it did. And so Montenegro became its own independent country. And on June 4th, 2006, the federal president of Serbia and Montenegro, Svetso Svetozar Maro. Marovich, I can say it, Svetozar Marovich, announced the dissolution of his office as president of Serbia and Montenegro, and the following day, Serbia acknowledged the end of their union. The EU and the U.S. recognized Montenegro on June 12th, and it became the 192nd member of the U.N. on the 26th of June 2006. Following Montenegro's independence, Serbia became the legal successor of Serbia and Montenegro. So essentially, Montenegro had to form its own new government, and Serbia kept what had been their joint government. Okay. In February of 2008, the Republic of Kosovo declared independence from Serbia, because again, this was still a province living in there, leading to an ongoing dispute on whether Kosovo is a legally recognized state. To this day, Kosovo is still not a member of the United Nations, but 115 UN states, including the United States and various members of the European Union, have recognized Kosovo as a sovereign state. And that is what happened to Yugoslavia. Oh my goodness. Everything I was talking about feels so much more low stakes now. <laughs> here like and then the sugar bear hair company vitamin <laughs> um yeah that's what happened thank you so much wow wow i feel like like i'm such a sick person that i'm like and then there was a then there was a battle and there was a siege and they kept people underground like but like i want <laughs> to know that information i grave that information because it's terrible yeah. like it's absolutely awful but I'm so fascinated by terrible events that happen that I know nothing about. Like, mm -hmm. I can't, I need to learn more about the Crusades. I need to. I have to. Because they were insane. <laughs> and, like, I'm getting, like, I'm continually so frustrated by the U.S. public education system because we don't learn nearly enough about other countries. Nearly enough. No. You know? We spend like, so I much know, time on our own. We spent, I learned about, I've said this before, I learned about the Civil War too many times. Too many times. <laughs> I mean, it was a very important part of our history. Like, it is, it is too, like, I understand why they're like, you need to understand every aspect of the United States Civil War because it has serious implications on our current society, and yeah. that's totally fair. However, you can't just be like, uh, then a crusade happened. There was actually multiple of them, and that's all I know. <laughs> I know that the Knights Templar were a part of it. 
which is dope as fuck. Like, <laughs> I want to know more. It took me until, I'm pretty sure until I took um uh, one of my, like, history classes in college for me to, like, really learn about the Spanish Inquisition. Like, uh, I still I don't remember... know enough about the Spanish Inquisition. Oh, It's when they tried to make a bunch it... of people Catholics, right? Yeah, it's rough. But they went to, like, I don't even know where they tried to inquest. Where did they, what did they try to take? Well, it, it was in Spain. It was, like... Oh, it happened in Spain. Yeah. I thought it was the Spanish Armada went somewhere else. No, it was, like, being oh. anything but Catholic in the country of Spain was, like, really dangerous. Oh, yeah, and they, like, murdered a bunch of Jewish people, didn't they? Yes, like, and a part bunch of, of black people, and, yeah, it was really bad. That's awful. They called them Moors at the time. Actually, I need to, I need to look into it. You need to freshen up <laughs> on some of these topics. But basically, it was racist and bad. Yes. <laughs> and, and, the, and some of the things that happened to people, like, oh, the torture methods. Uh, uh. But it's, like, it's so sick and disgusting, and I want to know all of it. <laughs> also, okay, wait. This is the last thing I have to talk about, but I have to say it. So my little sent me a video this week that is about the, a matrilineal line that exists in European sovereigns. Do you know what a matrilineal Ooh. line is? Like, um, I mean, I know match, like, having to do with mothers. Yeah, okay, so mo every line in Europe, in European um, royals, is always tracked patrilineally. So you always yeah. are in the house of your father. Which means that yes, when we, okay. like, we talk about the Hanover succession, we talk about the Tudors, like, those were all patrilineal dynasties because they all were passed down. And so they end when that line no longer produces any more male heirs, right? Like, there just aren't any more. Like, the yes. bourbons don't exist anymore, you know? Um, but matrilineally is when you track your dynasty back through mothers and, like, female heirs. And this oh. guy on YouTube, discovered that, like, every major European royal, including, wow. including Prince Philip, can be tracked to the same matrilineal line that started oh, no. in the 1400s. Oh, like they that's all, not great. Like, they all have a common ancestor. It, I mean, and yes, like, we know a lot of incest happened, particularly in, like, the 1600s amongst European yeah. royals. There was a lot of it, particularly between, like, first cousins and such. But it's yeah. absolutely insane, like, how long this matrilineal line has been around. And I highly encourage everybody to go watch it. It's so fascinating. It's so interesting. Like, essentially, they prove that, like, Queen Victoria, Maria Theresa, like, they all came from the same, the same woman. Oh. And I'm not saying they all shared the wow. great-great-grandmother, but it's, like, they had, like, their, like, their great-great-grandmothers were sisters or something like that. And then they had the same mother or something. Like, it, it's, it goes back literally 600 years. It is, like... <gasps> Aren't the longest existing matrilineal line ever. Aren't, like, Queen Elizabeth and her husband, like, not that distantly related? Yeah, like, they're, they like... are they both descendants of Queen Victoria? They are. They're like, they're, like, second cousins or something? They are. That's it. Yeah, he's... He's... That's why he's in the matrilineal line, not her. Um, mm. But, yes, he is the... He's Queen Victoria's great grands great grand nephew 
<laughs> he's a nephew of Queen Victoria, I'm pretty sure. I don't want to say something wrong and get ma- get yelled at by a British listener, but yeah, every every <laughs> I literally just had the instinct to go. I gotta catch up on Victoria. What? <laughs> I okay. I do, or at least I've seen the first like two or three seasons of that BBC show about Queen Victoria that was just called Victoria. And at one point last year, I was like, oh, I gotta catch up on Victoria. And Sarah and our other roommate Kelsey thought I was gonna say Victorious, <laughs> the Nickelodeon show. <laughs> I gotta catch up on Victorious. <laughs> Victorious is a good show. I mean, like, I wouldn't judge you. It's fine. Well, the Victoria Justice is the worst. I hate her. I think we all sing. I think we right? all sing. Oh, but I'm trying to find the name of this video that goes through this natural Lindy line. It's so in- it's so interesting. And this YouTube channel, if you are into history like me, it's a great YouTube channel to check out. Um, Okay, it's called Europe Europe's Hidden Matrilineal Dynasty. Wow. And that it's the House of Garcenda. Cool name. Oh. That's all the history I'm gonna talk about today. Thank you so much for listening. You can find <laughs> us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at YKWIBW Podcast. You can check out our website, I've been wondering.com. If you like what you're hearing, you can consider donating to us on Patreon or through the link in the show notes in our bio and or consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. And finally, if you something that you've been wondering, you can email us at I've been wondering podcast at gmail.com. And we'd love to put it on our show. Jane. Yes, Sarah. You know what I've been wondering? What have you been wondering? So recently there's this new show on HBO. This is not an ad. <laughs> it's <called laughs> I mean, you don't watch the show. It's called Love. It's called Lovecraft Country, and it's reimagining the tales of H.P. Lovecraft. And H.P. Lovecraft wrote a bunch of scary shit. Cool, but he was super racist. Uh-huh. And I just want to know more about that. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know much about it myself, so uh, okay, <laughs> I'll look into it. Yeah, I just want to talk about like who he was, how we know uh-huh. he was like, how uh-huh. we know he was racist, etc. Mm-hmm. on it on it great sarah <laughs> yes <laughs> do you know what i've been wondering what have you been wondering jane i, I keep trying to make it sound like it's a natural thing i'm saying um <laughs> i've been wondering about what is oktoberfest Ooh, more european history I know, and it's gonna be October next week. Thank God. Well, in a few days, but uh, in the a next, few days, yeah. the like the, the next episode. This episode comes out like at the very end of September. Last um, and day. Our next one will be into Spooky Month. Um, so I want to know about um a thing that sounds like October Oktoberfest. It's spelled differently. It happens in uh, October. That's why. <laughs> that's the only reason. I'm sure it's not the only reason, but it happens in October. Listen, all I know about it is that you drink beer at it, and it. Do you know where it happens? Germany. Yes. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yes, I will talk about the history of Oktoberfest. I've I I actually learned about this in Germany, and it's really interesting. Oh, cool! You'll like it. You'll like it. It'll be fun. All right. Good, Good. Good. That's what's coming at you next week. Thank you so much for listening. This is you know what I've been wondering.